This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to episode 27 of Aviation Careers Podcast. You know, one of the best aspects of a career in aviation is that you're surrounded by people who are passionate about their vocation. Today I have with me a person who's passionate about his career of designing repairs to airliners which have been damaged. Did you know fixing a damaged airliner includes engineering for the repair? You know, from nicks and scratches, dents and corrosion to bird strikes, skin patches, and other major repairs, uh, to aircraft primary structure, an engineer is involved in providing a solution. I have with me someone who is who actually designs structural repairs to damaged jets and who's passionate about flying planes as a private pilot. But first, before we begin, a word from our sponsor. One of the best ways to keep motivated and informed is through reading, watching videos, and listening to audiobooks. Amazon.com is a great way to shop for information and products relating to the field of aviation. Amazon also is a huge online store where you can find most of your shopping needs. If you want to help support Aviation Careers Podcast, shop at one of the largest online retailers by linking to Amazon from our website. Simply click on the Shop at Amazon button or type in your web browser, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash Amazon. By linking to Amazon from this website, you help make available all the valuable career content in this podcast. Most importantly, it doesn't cost you any more to simply link from this website and purchase your products. Thanks for your support. Today we are going to be speaking with Walter Chan, a designer of structural repairs and truly a passionate aviation enthusiast. Walter was referred to me from the host of Stuck Mike Avcast, Len Costa. Len said you'd really need to speak with Walter about aviation careers and his passion for all things aviation. Well, Walter, welcome to Aviation Careers Podcast. Thanks, Carl. Glad to be here. The, the one thing that uh, he told me about is the fact that you really, really are passionate about aviation, and we'll get into some of your private flying, but currently you are working as a structural engineer, and maybe you could just explain to us, what what is it that you do? Yeah, that's correct. I'm a structural repair designer for uh, an aviation manufacturer, and uh, basically what I do on a daily basis is uh, we get damage reports from operators all types of damages, uh, small little nicks and scratches, like you said, to the things like bird strikes where there's holes in the plane. And what we do is we, we assess the damage from their reports. Uh, we maybe go back and forth and get a bit more info. And then once we have all that info, uh, we design a repair. Sometimes, you know, if it's a little dent, we might just, uh, dress the, dress the skin back to its original contour. Or in the event of a bird strike or something where there's a hole in the plane, we might have to do some cutting replacing some some frames and stringers and putting patches on skins like that. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. I guess there's there's a lot. See, I didn't realize there was such a thing, to be honest with you. I, I had no idea. And you work with these, that you you work for the manufacturer, and then you go out to the airlines and help them with those repairs. That's pretty cool. Exactly. There's, there's uh, as, as the manufacturer of the airplane, we have, uh, I guess, the authority from Transport Canada, and uh, that... That authority from Transport Canada translates over to the FAA in the U.S. and EASA in Europe, et cetera. And what that allows us to do is issue a full 
repair that once it's implemented, the plane becomes airworthy. Whereas if, uh, if a maintenance organization were to perform their own repair and do their own engineering, they might have to go get approval from their local airworthiness authority before they can fly. So it's, it's like a one-stop shop for the operator to come back to the manufacturer to, to get the repair done, get the paperwork, and then be able to go flying right after it. Cause you know, there might be, there might be passengers at the gate waiting to fly. And you know, when a plane's not flying, that's costing the company lots of money. Yeah, it sure does. And, and I think people don't realize this is that, you know, when I'm flying, the, the planes kind of, they get dented, they get uh, hit by trucks. They, they, uh, they get hurt every so often. And there are a, a lot of mechanics can come out and actually look at it and inspect it and say, okay, you're good to go. But we're talking about those instances where something bends on the airplane. Say, oh, say a ba- I had this happen. I had a baggage uh, cart smash into my airplane in uh, in Moncton, and the uh, they actually had to inspect the plane. Said it was okay, but I had another instance where a friend of mine had the same thing happen, and they actually had to come out and design a solution. And that's where you come in. You don't. The mechanic comes out, inspects it, and says, "Yeah, you can go or it can't go." But you actually design the repair for that, and that that's pretty cool. I mean, that that takes a, a little bit of thought there. Yeah, it's it's funny you say that the baggage cart incident because uh, you'd be surprised how often that happens. Not only just the baggage carts, but all the ground service vehicles, um, from the baggage carts to the catering companies, um, anti uh, de ice trucks, all those all those things that that come near the plane when it's parked at the gate. That's always causing damage to the plane. Wow. So. You know, the, even though the structure is really reinforced in the areas of, you know, like uh, passenger doors, service doors, cargo doors, there's, there's still a significant amount of damage that comes from, from ground service equipment. I wonder how many of those happen every day. I mean, that'd be kind of <laughs> yeah. neat to find out. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's incredible. Just bird strikes alone, too. I mean, birds are yes. always hitting airplanes. <clears throat> um, but, yeah. but you know, the, and, and that's another thing, too, is that the, you'll get a mechanic comes out and they say, okay, it's good to go. And then, uh, or, or they don't, you know, and, and they, they do coordinate with someone like yourself, the, the, uh, the designer of that aircraft or the manufacturer, I should say. Exactly. Yeah. So, so to answer your original question is once, once that happens, once you flag that damage on your, on your walk around, the mechanic will come, will come out, but it's not them that's going to say whether or not you're good, good to go or not. The most, most airline manufacturers have what's called a structural repair manual. And in that structural repair manual, there are allowable limits for dents and scratches. So, you know, barring any huge hole in the plane, they might just measure the damage and find out that it's within allowable limits and allow you to fly or at least allow you to fly for a certain number of, of cycles. There might be some, some repeat inspections to check if there's any damage propagation. But generally, they re- they refer to some sort of documentation to give the okay, and there is some paperwork that goes behind that. Even though you flagged it and said someone said it was okay to go, there's a there's a paperwork trail for that, and I'm sure you have some uh, some reports on on the piloting side to to fill out when you see something to flag it. Oh sure, yeah, we have a an actual maintenance log where we fill it out, and then of course. Uh, now it's interesting you mentioned this because now I understand what they're saying. Well, they'll, they'll say, Hey, we need to make sure it's within limits. So that's, that's the document they look towards, the manual they look towards. And then they'll say, Okay, it's within, it's inspected, it's within limits. And, uh, this, you know, it sometimes will say a, a re, uh, an inspection repeated at a certain time. 
or must be repeated a certain time, that type of thing. Uh, so that, that's, that's how that works. And, and, you know, it's, there's tons of paperwork. It's amazing the mounds of paperwork we have for, for repairs like that. So yes, uh, that, so that's what happens. So now I know a little bit of behind the, the scenes what, so when they're, when they're, uh, trying to find out if it's within limits, that's what they mean. If it's within limits of what it says in the manual. Exactly. And if it's not within limits, then we go to your second part of your question is what happens if you can't go flying? Then you need to now you need to get somebody to uh, to fix it and to uh, engineer a solution, I guess, and that's what you do. Exactly. So the operator will call us up. I mean, they have an option to to go somewhere else, but since we're the manufacturers and we're obviously very familiar with the aircraft, we're probably the best choice to to pick for for a repair like that. And uh, I'd say fifty percent of the repairs we get are planes that are in scheduled maintenance. So while the mechanics are taking stuff apart in the interior or things like that, they'll find damage and they'll flag it. But the other 50% is the stuff that happens like in your case where the plane is in service and, you know, in your case, ready to fly. And that's when, that's when things are urgent. So we, we do base our work on, on how urgent the repair is needed. If some, some planes in sea check, then we might take a, a week to, to provide the repair and, you know, make a, a full permanent repair. And when I say C-check for the uh, listeners who maybe aren't familiar, C-check is a heavy maintenance check that happens every few thousand flight hours. So we might take a long time to, to provide a, a full repair that'll last the life of the airplane. But in your case, uh, if we take the baggage cart incident, you are probably ready to board passengers sometime soon. And when that happens, we might issue some temporary repairs you know, to allow the plane to fly for at least a few flight hours until it can get, until it can get to its home base. Right. Or, uh, if, if it's too bad for that, we can also issue what's called a ferry flight. And a ferry flight would allow the plane to do a non-revenue flight to return to its home base where we could then do a, a full repair. And you hope that happens because otherwise you, 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 uh, you get stuck actually having to fix it on site because that, that has happened to me where we couldn't even, it, the damage was so bad they couldn't even get a ferry flight permit. They had to do some preliminary repairs and then got a ferry flight permit to actually find, to go someplace to actually do the rest of the repairs. So, exactly. So then, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing that flight was canceled. Yeah. <laughs> it sure was. <laughs> it sure. Yeah. And then, and then ha- and like I said, and you said too, it, it does happen more than, than you think. And that's why you have to be super duper careful working around airplanes. The ground crews are, have to really be trained and have to be super careful. But, uh, you know, uh, speaking of, before we get too much into your engineering job, I, you know, one of the things, uh, I forgot to ask you in the beginning here, I love to do this. I like to tell people where we are. I'm actually, uh, today in sunny Florida and, uh, from, uh, my home here. And we're, you, and it's about, right now, it's, it was about 75 degrees out today, but you're somewhere a little <laughs> bit cooler than that right now. Where, where are you right now? I'm in, I'm in Montreal, Canada. Mm-hmm. And, uh, presently we just got, uh, well, we, past few days we just got about two feet of snow. Wow. But luckily it's not so cold out. It's, uh, it's around zero Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. Uh, 32, yeah. But, uh, it's just at freezing point. So there's a lot of slush on the ground. It's not ideal conditions. <laughs> not for flying at least 
No, and I was just out on the beach in my shorts. So this is uh, <laughs> there, and and that brings up a point here that I was going to make is that these aircraft have to operate in all these extremes, you know, of, of weather and and cold, and and these break these things don't just break in seventy five degree sunny Florida weather. They break out there in the field where it's snowing, couples of feet of snow, and uh, these these folks that have to go out there and and fix these, I, I really give them a lot of credit. I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, the weather act- does play a significant amount of, uh, in our workload, sometimes we'll have, uh, a hailstorm, and all of a sudden the next day at work, we'll have, you know, a dozen planes that have dents all over the fuselage, or, uh, you know, we might get a, a tropical storm. And then the next day we'll have a dozen planes with lightning strikes all over the plane. And I don't know if you're familiar with how lightning strike is on a fuselage, but the plane is basically designed to, to conduct the electricity to allow it to go to the ground. And what that results in is little burn marks at, at points where there's a bit more resistance than the rest of the plane. So you'll often get uh, burn marks around some rivets or burn marks at the edge of parts, things like that. And there, there's, you know, you can get, it's not surprising to have a, an airplane with, with 20 lightning strike damages. And each one of those damages has to be assessed one by one. And that could take some time, I would assume, you know, to do all that. That's fascinating. I didn't realize all that, that you had to do all that. Because I know uh, when we've had light, lightning strike inspections, you know, they have to go all over the whole airplane and just mark down a few spots. I've seen some big, big burns, uh, big holes, actually, you know, like four inches wide uh, from a lightning strike. So they, they, they can do some damage. That's for sure. But the, but the nice thing is, like you just said, uh, so that some people don't get scared, is that these planes are designed to, to have that lightning dissipate and go to certain spots in the airplane and then go outside the airplane and, and fall in a path of least resistance. And, uh, that's, it's also interesting to see that a lot of these airplanes now are, you, they use composites. So we have to have some way to bond those two metal materials. And most of these airplanes have like bond, you know, straps that bond the two metals together. And those are, are made of some conductive materials. Yeah, we either have bonding straps, which connect the two materials to have at least less resistance than the material. So y- your your path of electricity will flow through that bonding strap. But that's a pretty heavy alternative weight-wise. A lot of uh, composites, what they're doing now is installing copper mesh as a final ply on their layup of materials. So that copper mesh will will conduct all the electricity. It's better from a weight point of view and a, and a maintenance point of view, but when you do have your lightning strike, I've seen some lightning testing done on, on composite panels, and uh, usually that entire mesh will fry, so you'll have to you'll have to do a repair for the entire part, which can be pretty complicated. Oh sure, sure. Well, you know this, this all sounds like really cool. And it's pretty fascinating stuff. And, uh, you know, before we actually get into what, what you do on a day-to-day basis, and, you know, I could talk forever about some of the cool repairs you have. Um, one of, one of the reasons I was, I was told to speak with you is you actually have not just a passion for aviation, but also a passion for flying. And, uh, how, how did you, how did you develop this passion and for both? I don't know if it's easy to say one particular point that, that got me started. Um, I've always, Loved seeing planes flying when I was, even when I was a kid. And this is, this is before knowing the physics of flight and, you know, just seeing these gigantic metal structures flying in the air. They don't look like they should be flying. But, you know, after you get into the, the technical details of it, you say, okay, yeah, these planes can fly and there's, there's some math and physics that go behind it. But, uh, before my, before I even went in a plane, I always thought it was cool. And then, uh, 
the first flight I ever took, I think I was uh, probably four or five. I was going to Europe with my mother, and uh, we were on uh, 747. I think it was uh, KLM. And this is back in the day when uh, when riding on an airline was really a top-notch, upper-class type thing. And uh, we were somehow bumped up to first class. I think there was some seating problem or or they had accidentally put us in the smoking section. This is also back when, when there were smoking sections on planes. And I was luckily, lucky enough to go into the cockpit this, during flight and, uh, and see what was going on. I thought it was amazing. I was overwhelmed with the number of buttons and stuff there was in there. And now I have an idea of how all that stuff works. But, uh, I think from that moment on, I could say it was, was my passion was, uh, it was a catalyst for my passion for aviation. But then actually getting involved in it was, uh, you know, I, I went to university and studied mechanical engineering, but I never really did it for the aerospace part of it. Um, I, I probably would have been involved in aviation had I chosen another field, but uh, it works out well because aviation needs a lot of mechanical engineers. So uh, also being a, in Montreal, it's we'd like to call it the aerospace capital of, of the world. There's a lot of aerospace companies here in Montreal. Uh, provides a good odd job opportunity for me finishing school and uh, allows me to pursue my career in aviation. There there, there are quite a few uh, companies in the Montreal areas involved in aviation. I get to fly up there quite often. And, you know, from, from engine manufacturers to aircraft manufacturers to uh, simulators, uh, there's quite a few things that go on up there. So that's a, a real exciting place to be, especially as an engineer. And uh, exactly. it's interesting that you went from mechanical to uh to doing something in, in aviation and it's, 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 I'm sure you're glad that there are, uh, jobs in, as mechanical engineers in, uh, in these different air, airline manufacturers, uh, engine manufacturers and et cetera. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say you also, uh, fly airplanes too. You don't just fix them. Yes. Um, I've been flying for about two years now. I'm only a private pilot and, uh, only flying a 172, but, uh, the thrill is there. I absolutely, I absolutely love it. it. It takes a lot of skill to fly a 172. It, it, you know, when people say it's it, it's only a 172, I tell you what, get an airline pilot like myself into a 172, and and, and you'll see some, some a, a real comic routine trying to land that thing because uh, it takes a <laughs> it takes a lot of different skills. I know when I transition back, it's it's a whole other ball game. You, you know, obviously using a lot more stick and rudder, and uh, the controls are super light. You know, a light aircraft uh, is blown around by the wind a lot more than a than a heavier jet. That's for sure. But it's it's good to know that people like you are still hand flying little planes because, you know, as as proficient as you may be in in an electric jet, you still want uh, your pilot to to have those hand flying skills and those basic those basic get your plane on the ground skills. You, you know, it's funny you mention that because, in general, uh, the airlines uh, since the I think. Primarily since, uh, two accidents. There's the one in, up in, uh, Buffalo and then another one, Air France accident. There's a lot more stress on actual flying skills when things don't work. And I think that's yes. really important to, to have those skills when you're moving forward and just say to yourself, what would happen if this didn't, didn't work? Or, or, you know, as, as people say, what the heck is the airplane doing now? You know, and be able yeah. to turn, turn all that electric stuff off and, and keep fly, hand flying the airplane. And, uh, yes, it, it's good. There, there's a lot of folks that don't like to do that. I mean, they just want to get up there and push the buttons and go. Uh, exactly. but, but the, uh, the flying part, you're still going to land the airplane. And, yeah. uh, 
But I, I will say one thing. I love the autopilot because when you're flying eight hours in a day, you really <laughs> don't want to do that hand flying. Yeah, I don't know what that's like to fly for, for eight hours. I guess uh, I wouldn't mind having that problem of having eight hours flying with no no autopilot. Yeah, it's 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 not bad except for the fact that you're you're up there all the time, but you uh, and and you're just sitting there sometimes straight and level for three or four hours and and uh, but the the takeoffs and landings obviously are, are the fun part. Uh, and as you know, I mean, it, flying a smaller airplane. But you know, going before we talk a, about your flying career, let's talk about engineers. And you have worked for a company that manufactures airplanes. So what I'm trying to do is understand the type of engineers that would work for an aircraft manufacturer so if someone's looking to to work in the just how about in the aerospace field in general what degrees would they uh look for or what type of engineers would work for a company like yours you know it's it's really all all kinds of engineers and you, I, I said before mechanical was pretty much the big one but uh lots of electrical engineers also mm-hmm. um you might even have some software guys in there you you won't really have you know civil engineers and uh, to a lesser extent, uh, computer engineers, mm-hmm. but uh, the engineering that has to do with with uh, the physics, and and then more and more as we get in uh, high tech planes, some some software, but uh, mostly mechanical, electrical, and uh, a, a bit of software. So you wouldn't really see, say, a chemical engineer, and uh, like you said, the the uh, computer engineer. It's actually interesting you say that. I I guess I didn't mention chemical engineering because it wasn't offered as a program at the school I went to, but I I wouldn't be surprised to see a chemical engineer in there. There's a lot of materials and processes that go on. And, you know, those those fields I was talking about is is the type of studying you do to become an engineer in in an aerospace manufacturer. But once you're in there, we have all kinds of, of engineers who, who, within company titles, um, range from everything, uh, systems, structures. We have a uh, power plant for the engines. Hydromechanical, you got your all your hydraulics in your high lift with your flaps and slats, and even landing gears are hydraulic. Uh, there's aerodynamics also. That's that plays a big part in the plane, obviously. And uh, the structures engineer is mostly mostly mechanical. You're dealing a lot with stresses, and uh, we have even liaison engineers that that are the the link between uh, on the shop floor to the the engineering that goes on in the office. Now, getting to the computer engineer, you know, you said there probably aren't too, aren't too many of those. It, it it almost seems like there would be. Actually, that that's my background. I started out in computer engineering, and oh, yeah. Uh, okay. yeah, it's fascinating. It, it, but uh, I had thought maybe there would be uh, quite a few jobs, but that that's more maybe in the avionics part of it, but but not so much. I guess there aren't quite as many jobs. Right. I guess I guess my my opinion was a bit biased from uh, from a manufacturer point of view because most of the manu- well, in fact, all the manufacturers get their Avionics and subassemblies done by suppliers. So a computer engineer, for for instance, or an electrical or software engineer, would actually play a big role in aerospace by working on the avionics that go into these planes. Right. So that'd be like a Honeywell or something like that, right? Exactly. Honeywell, Rockwell, Collins. Interesting. Interesting. That'd be. Uh, hey, there's there's uh, another company we need to talk to, I guess, about the engineering jobs there. Um, yeah. The, uh, but getting back to your job uh, as an engineer in aerospace engineering, and what uh, what does somebody expect as far as working conditions and in, in what you do in in your specific job? Do you sit in an office or do you get to go to exciting places? Most of my day is spent in an office, and uh, 
I actually talked to you a couple of days ago about the kind of shift work I do. Um, since we're uh, customer facing, we have uh, our particular department that does the structural repairs has uh, people working 24 seven. So there's someone in the office right now. It's, uh, it's almost 10 at night and uh, there's going to be someone there at three in the morning. And we always have someone there in case, in case there's that baggage cart that runs in into the plane and is flagged by the pilot just before the takeoff. We have someone there to, to give the okay or to give a quick repair or, or temporary or ferry flight, whatever the need may be. And, uh, because of that, I work, uh, generally four days on, four days off, changes here and there. And it is mostly a desk job, uh, sit in front of the computer most of the time, unless I'm walking around, uh, getting info from, from other departments. Um, when it's, when it's off hours, you're kind of on your own. You get need to, to find the information on your own. But during business hours, we have a, a lot of support from, uh, from, uh, production guys or, or other engineers that might be around more familiar with, with a certain part of the aircraft that you're working on. And, uh, on some occasion, like you mentioned, uh, we do travel a lot. If there's, uh, if there's an incident, for instance, that has pretty severe damage, rather than having the operator send us a damage report, we'll just go on site and, and do the damage assessment ourselves. It's kind of fun too, because, you know, you get, you get a different change from your everyday job. You get to go see a plane in the field instead of sitting in front of a computer and, uh, you get to meet some great people, get to help get the plane back in service, which is really our goal. So yeah, we do sometimes get to travel. When you travel, is, is there any place that, like, give me an example of some place, say, exciting that you went to during this whole process of fixing airplanes? I, uh, I recently just got back from France. There was, uh, a runway excursion there with one of our aircraft. Um, but really we can go anywhere that our planes are flying. So, so anywhere in the world, uh, we might get sent. I was, yeah. So I was saying I was just recently in France. There was a runway excursion planned to go for only a week, but ended up staying, uh, two weeks. Uh, sometimes for some smaller things, you might only go a couple of days. Uh, I think, uh, last year, I went for a pretty severe damage. It was in, uh, in Rhode Island. And, uh, we only ended up staying two days cause, uh, we did all the work we could. And, uh, at that point we just headed back home and we can do the rest of the engineering work from our office. But, uh, I have some colleagues who have gone to China to other places in Europe. Uh, I think I have a colleague now who's in Denmark and, uh, another one of my colleagues who just got back from, uh, from Newark actually. Oh wow. There was uh there was a bird strike there. The condition of these these planes are the condition of the the work required is is really urgent. You know the we we're talking about VPs and stuff getting involved telling you we need we need some support on site right now because we need to know for our planning purposes how long this plane's going to be out of service and we really want to get it back flying as soon as possible. So on those times when we do go travel, you know, you show up to work expecting a normal day come in, have your coffee, and then you, your boss shows up and says, go home, get your passport, pack your bags. You're going, uh, you know, you're going to France or you're going to Rhode Island. Well, that's cool. You know, Walter, this it kind of really blows my mind that, that there is this job out there of a, of a repair design engineer. I I had no clue. And I, I, I know we've worked with engineers and the manufacturers when we've had certain problems. And uh, I, I just, it's pretty darn cool. I mean, I think it's neat that you get to, you are providing a solution to a problem, and I'm sure some may look the same, but you never know what you're going to get. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a great job, and one of the really cool things I find about it, aside from, 
from the interesting travel is that you show up to work every day and you're pretty much working on something new. You're not doing the same, uh, you know, uh, people who are working in development or, or specialize in a certain system of the air, aircraft, they might be working on the same thing for months on end. And I, you know, it, it could get boring. It's, it's still very fulfilling and it's still very interesting, but being able to show up and, and not know what you're working on and learning something new every day, working on a new part, learning something you didn't know existed from the day before. And that's really cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, it, uh, it sounds extremely interesting to me and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now that, that are, that are really interested in doing something like this, but, but the whole, like I said, I'd never heard of a repair design engineer. So, you know, what would you tell somebody that now, now they're interested in, in doing that? Like I'm interested. I think it's really cool. But what would you tell someone young that wants to become or anybody that wants to become a, a repair design engineer? What, what advice would you give them? What path? Where would they go education wise and that type of thing and how to network? Well, number one would be, uh, first of all, have, have the passion, want to, want to do this kind of work. And, uh, then there's the technical side of it where, you know, you do need to go to school. Um, university degree in aerospace mechanical engineering that type of thing and you know a, a lot of the stuff you learn in school you don't usually apply on a day-to-day -day basis um, I found that in my previous jobs you know you're only using 10% of what you learned in school and the rest is just you know your problem solving skills or or you at least learned how to solve a problem and you learn the skills on how to get the information you need to solve a problem but the actual technical skills the the a plus b that you learn in school doesn't really apply every day but in this job it absolutely does so uh i would say go to school get your degree stay up to date with uh with all the current events and technology because that's going to get you uh, get your foot in the door in the workplace and once you're in you know just show your passion for it and there's there's jobs like this uh, not only in where i work but uh in other aerospace manufacturers also and, you know, what's interesting is that not only is it rewarding, you know, for you personally, it, it's actually uh, economically it's fairly rewarding. Uh, you know, if we look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, aerospace engineers, let's see, a median income I'm looking up right now is you're looking at about 97000 on the median. That's right in the middle there. And, uh, you know, half above, half below. The outlook for the jobs, and this is something that's mentioned on their website, it's a little bit tighter. In other words, there's not going to be quite as many jobs, and it seems to me that's a little bit more competitive. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? I mean, you have to really take, bring your A game to your interview, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I, I guess being in Montreal, I am pretty lucky to have a, a large selection of employers to choose from. Again, those those big manufacturers, like you were saying, and, and like I was saying, that all those suppliers that, that provide the manufacturers with their systems and equipment, uh, there's there's a lot of them. So I wouldn't say it's as competitive in my local workplace, but uh, on a large scale, big picture, yeah, you're you're right. It is pretty competitive. Um, as for the salary, uh, I don't know if it's. I wouldn't say it's it's the same in here in Canada. I would say it's probably a little bit lower. So I wouldn't I wouldn't choose this career for the money. I would choose it for for the kind of work you do. I mean, it, it is nice to get, to get a rewarding paycheck, but. You really have to love what you're doing because you don't want to, you don't want to do a job just for the money. Because when you when you have some tough days, it's 
it's going to take suck all the motivation out from you. Oh, sure, sure. As a matter of fact, and to add to what you said about the pay, that you know, like Aviation Week has an did a little survey as far as the average pay, and uh, if you're starting out, it's usually they're saying average engineers run from about sixty thousand dollars entry level on on up. Uh, but, uh, you're looking at the, see, they've taken all these other jobs into account and say like a, like a senior aerospace engineer might make in the 140s, 130 range. And, uh, that's what they're telling us. So. Yeah. But, yeah. You're not, you're not far off. Uh, yeah. I would say here locally, I think, uh, entry level is, is in the low fifties would be somewhat competitive on the market. So again, these are numbers based on my experience and it might, it might be different from inflation from, from a few years ago. But uh, around that area and, and where you're going for a senior uh, highly technical engineer is probably in that, uh, you know, one could go up to 140-ish. Yeah, so you'll make a good living, that's for sure, you know, and you get to do something fun. As as opposed to an entry level airline pilot that's making you know yeah, twenty thousand a year, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but uh, and that's but, that's kind of why I'm you know I'm kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because I I love my engineering job but you know I I really really love flying and and I, I would love to to fly for a living but uh, I have to keep that balance you know I don't want to I don't want to jump into uh, full time flying because I you know it would it would really affect my standard of living. Oh, sure. And that's something that, you know, we talk about a lot here on the podcast is the fact that you really need to plan because you don't, if you're making good money now and you're working towards your ratings, you really need to keep that job. And that's what I did. You know, I, I had a very good paying job and I really wanted to fly, but I made sure that I got every single rating done before I jumped into it full time because the, the change in salary is going to be, be dramatic. That's for sure. And you know, the, you know, my advice to people if they're looking at changing careers is the fact that, you know, maybe you should make sure you don't spend too much money because as you start working your way into any career, you start making more money, and then you start buying bigger toys and bigger homes, that type of thing. It sounds like you really do have a passion for flying, and it's neat you, that you actually are looking at the possibility of doing some flying uh, and making some money in it. Well, yeah, I'd love to. Ideally, you know, I would use, um, I, I would find a job that that couples my piloting skills with my engineering skills you know flight test engineer type of thing um but really like i said the work i do now is is really amazing because of the travel opportunities and the ability to learn so much in such a small amount of time so uh, i'm pretty happy where i am now uh, but i do want to keep on flying and getting my ratings uh, actually you had a you had a guest on a show recently who was uh a part-time instructor and uh, he was moving on to uh to full-time instructing but that's uh that's uh, an opportunity i'm looking at you know because because of the shift work that i do um it would be nice to to take my days off and and you know go flying and maybe teach some other people how to fly you know i i think that is a great idea because we need people that to teach that are passionate about this uh this flying and this aviation career and this life and one of the things that I've noticed is that someone like yourself who has an engineering background, you can bring a lot to, to that instruction. Obviously, you're not going to go way over their heads, but, but if they want to know more, you can go there with them. You know, you can, you can explain different things to them and, and they can see other options in the aviation world. They may someday say, Hey, I don't want to fly a plane. I want to be an engineer, that type of thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, the neat thing about, and I think you're on the right track here about getting your flight instructor certificate. And I try to tell people, Get as many flight instructor certificates as you can. 
And the reason being is you, if you want to build some flight time, you can always be the pilot in command in that airplane because you can always give some type of instructing. Plus, the other thing is if you become, say, a, a, a flight instructor, then an instrument instructor, a multi-engine instructor, you become available to so many different people. And, you know, as a matter of fact, that's that's what I do. I try to, to learn as much as I can about so many different airplanes. So if somebody has a Grumman Cougar, there's not too many of those in the U.S. You know, they'll come to me and say, hey, can you can you take me out for a lesson? And that's what I think, you know, would be good for you. And I, I think you're really on the right track. And there's a lot of people out here listening um, and, and that will will be looking at what you're doing. And I, hopefully, you know, in the future, I'd, I'd like to maybe uh, keep up with your progress and we could talk again yeah, sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually have a question for you, and you probably answered it on previous episodes, but what do you do to stay current as, as an instructor since you're, since you're a line pilot? Uh, actually, it's not very tough to do for me because of the fact that I'm, I'm very involved in general aviation. I, I think it's a little tougher for most others. Uh, I'm, I'm involved, uh, with many different things in general aviation. I do, I'm part of the FAST team, and that's the FAA safety team, so I give lectures on flying, and I also teach at the local airport, although I don't get to fly as much as I'd like to, uh, because I am so busy, but that keeps me up with the current instructional environment. And I have people that, that challenge me, and I, I do a lot of, uh, seminars, etc. So you have to go out and find it. Here's an interesting thing. Interesting, you you mentioned this because an airline pilot, you know, a lot of the a lot of airline pilots have have quite a bit of knowledge as far as instrument instructing. So that's normally what I get asked to do is do instrument uh-huh. training. But some of the things I love to do are like commercial check rides, like Shondells, Lazy Eights, Eights on Pylons, all those fun maneuvers. Uh, yeah. But I usually don't get selected to do that because of the fact that I'm, you know, I have so much experience in the instrument side, and they want me to to help them out there. So I really, uh, instructional wise, you know, instructing is a lot different than than just using it because. Uh, the other thing that I'll do is I read. I read all the time. I actually read Flight Training Magazine uh, to keep in touch with the, that environment, uh, AOPA Pilot Magazine, uh, all these different magazines that are out there. There's a ton of information out there on the web, the websites, all blogs and aviation blogs. So that's a great way to, to keep up. Now, the other part of that is the skill of flying. The one part of the skill of flying that, that that diminishes, I found, and someone like myself who does a lot of instrument flying and flies jets is the takeoffs and landings in a smaller plane. So I force myself to go out and do some touch and goes. And, and I suggest that, yeah, yeah, and that's what I suggest to, to anybody. That's a great question, though. I mean, that's what I suggest to, to, well, just any pilot in general. Just get out there and do takeoffs and landings. Because that's where most of our accidents are. So l- let me ask you this. On your, looking at your, um, career, what challenges do you think you're, you have facing, uh, completing some of these ratings i know you have some extra time is that part of it well yeah there's time i guess wouldn't be as much as of an inhibitor as someone who works a, a monday to friday nine to five job um, as you know most most of the bookings on cessnas happen on weekends on sunny days so so it's tough to to do an impromptu flight on the weekend but uh on on the week it's it's pretty easy to get get a get a plane booked so uh, I guess in terms of challenges, I wouldn't say time, but uh, uh, there's the financial challenge we spoke about briefly before. And, uh, you know, staying current, kind of like what we were saying, it's pretty easy to stay current when you're at the, the private level. But, you know, once you get up to your, your, your ratings, you know, you have to keep, keep flying and flying with passengers and stuff to, to keep your ratings um, valid. Right. Uh, 
even the medicals, for instance, uh, for a, for a private pilot in Canada, uh, we have a class three that's good for five years. But, uh, once you go commercial, uh, below, I think the age of 45 or 65, this is an exam question too. <laughs> uh, you need to, you need to get your medical, uh, renewed every, every two years. Right. And, uh, in the end, it can even for, uh, for an ATP above, uh, above 60, I think it can be as low as six months. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, uh, that's what I'm at in, in the U.S. Ours is actually uh, over 40. You have to get it every six months. So, okay. Over 40. Yeah. I think the, the FAA rules in Transport Canada are pretty similar. So yeah. I'll make sure to get that question right on my commercial exam. <laughs> and, uh, another big inhibitor is, is the weather really in, in Canada. Um, you know, although the performance is great in cold weather, uh, flying a VFR, you can't really do much when, uh, you got a lot of cloudy weather and we get that a lot. Yeah, you sure do. And, and you get that snow. Wow. Two feet exactly. of snow. You get quite a bit of that. But that's good too. I mean, you do learn how to, to, to fly in some, some low visibility, except in a, you know, a small plane without, uh, anti-ice protection is, is tough to, to fly in that type of weather, I'm sure. So, so you basically have like what everybody else has, the weather, the, the, the money, the time. Uh, but get, getting back to the time, I'm not sure. I know we talked about this offline, but I'm not sure you explained that, uh, what, what exactly is your shift work involved? Like what hours do you work? I guess is the best way to ask that. Uh, the hours I work are, um, generally six, six thirty in the morning until four or four thirty in the afternoon, which is really only 10 hours a day. It's not, it's not so bad. Um, and usually four days on with, uh, three to four days off, which is pretty nice. Uh, I, I really, I really like having those days off, but, uh, you know, once on, on your fourth day of work, after working those long hours, uh, especially at uh, at this latitude, you know, right now the sun sets at uh, four four thirty, it's and uh, it doesn't rise till around seven in the morning. So you know, I go to work in the dark and I come home in the dark, and and that's pretty tough. And yeah, I guess we have similar hours. You know, most airline pilots they'll do four day trips and have three off, sometimes four off between trips. Um, but, uh, but at least we get to see the sun, I guess, come up and, and go down during our, our jobs looking out the window. So that, that would be intriguing. But, uh, so. I should, I should mention though that it's not, it's not everyone in, in my department that, that works this and not everyone in this, this type of work that does structural repairs that does necessarily shift work. Right. It's just an option we have to, you know, to better serve our customers. But, uh, you know, I, I would say most of the, we even have people that work regular nine to five Monday to Friday. And, you know, they work on, on more long-term repairs, like, like those planes that I said were in C-Check that, uh, need big overhauls. And, you know, the night shift guys that are there at three in the morning, they're there for those, those baggage cart incidents or small nicks and scratches. Well, gosh, it sounds like you, you have a lot of exciting things happening in your life. You're looking at uh, the possibility of doing some flying either part-time or full-time as a career, maybe. Um, and you have this really cool job where, you know, you're designing, uh, repairs to, to things that break and, and, and it's really exciting because you don't know what you're going to get, you know? And exactly. I, I think exactly. that's, that's really cool. I mean, what, uh, what is your favorite thing about your job right now? Aside from the, the travel part that I said, you know, you don't always get to travel. There's some periods where you go more often than others. It's, it's really the, the, first of all, the people I work with are, are great. I have a blast with every one of them. And, uh, you know, you don't see them every day because, you work shifts. So the days you are working, you might work with one person of an opposing shift. And the next day you come in, some other shift is in. So, 
So you don't see the same people every day, Monday to Friday. So you, there's no, uh, what's the expression I'm looking for? Familiarity breeds contempt. That's what I was. Yeah. We don't have, we don't have a lot of that because we don't see each other much. So, so the people are great, but, uh, work wise, it's definitely showing up to work, not knowing what you're going to work on and getting a new challenge every day. I really don't want to ever want to take that for granted. No, no. And I think, I think a lot of the people listening right now will, will say to themselves that that sounds really cool. You know, Walter, I really appreciate your, your talking to us today about your career. And, uh, you know, I was wondering, would you mind, uh, helping me out with a question that I have from Absolutely. a listener? Absolutely. My oh, pleasure. Cool. I have, um, actually, uh, the, I have somebody who wrote in and his name is Junior, uh, and he lives in Brazil. Uh, so let me just read this, his little background here and then, uh, ask, uh, you the questions, uh, that he wrote in here. So, uh, Junior writes to me, he says, uh, Dear Carl, my name is Junior. I'm writing to you from Sao Paulo, Brazil, to show my appreciation for the job you do to enlightening listeners about aviation careers. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Junior, for that. Uh, I'm a graphic designer and have decided to move to an aviation career. I've been looking for information relating to the aviation field. However, I was not able to find something from an aviation personal perspective. When I found your podcast on iTunes, it caught my attention and I've been a listener ever since. Well, I really appreciate that, Junior, and I'm glad that you're finding some value in this podcast. Junior continues, I just heard your talk with Alan Lawless, and I would like to address a question to both of you. Now, Alan Lawless was on a, a previous uh, episode, episode 22, Aviation Careers Podcast slash 22, and he talked about designing. He's a flight test engineer, a really interesting uh, person to talk to there. But he continues, uh, this year I started aircraft maintenance training. Even though I haven't started working as a mechanic yet, it's clear to me that I'm in the right path due to my good performance and training. Apart from getting to know airplanes in a more technical sense by studying for my aircraft and power plant license, and I also intend to study avionics, I'm quite interested in taking an aeronautical engineering master's degree. The facilities of Embraer and Helibras Eurocopter, uh, Helibras Eurocopter, I think that's how you say it, are within 300 kilometers from me, and the idea of participating in the aircraft development process sounds amazing. I have some concerns about only having a master's degree in engineering. So he asked these questions, and I'll, I'll put these to you, and I'll also ask Alan for his suggestions here. So his first question is this. He asked, should I begin with an undergraduate degree in engineering before pursuing my master's? Well, I don't I don't exactly know how it, it, the system works in, in Brazil, but uh, here you're not able to do your master's degree without having an undergraduate degree. And I would say even if you did have the opportunity to absolutely go for your undergraduate degree first, you need to get those basic basic skills and knowledge before continuing into to higher education like that. And, you know, uh, he's, he mentions his doing a master's, particularly engineering, but uh, I know generally the master's programs we have here are very, very specific. So you, you do an undergraduate degree, for instance, like in my case, in mechanical engineering, but then you do a master's to specialize in something like, you know, um, airflow over the blades of a rotorcraft and you do a whole master's just on that one topic. So you become a real, really a specialist in a certain field and that, that can be great, but it can also narrow down your job opportunities. You don't want to be too overqualified or, 
or have a lot of training in in a field that not ne- that might not necessarily pertain to the job you're applying for. I th- that would be my advice in general for any uh, masters is that if it's something very technical like engineering is is to actually have that basics first, get your let's say bachelor's first, and and then move on to your masters. I think that's some great advice. Exactly. Or even in the best case scenario is you take your undergraduate degree, you get that job at Embraer or Hellebras, and you get them to pay for your master's. Because not only will they pay for your master's, but they'll make sure you take the training that, that is really pertinent to the job you're doing. Right. Great idea. And that's some great advice, too, is just have them pay for it. Um, you know, he, he actually asked another important question here because he sounds like he's interested in a flight test engineer. And he was wondering, is it important to have a pilot's license to be a flight test engineer? From my personal perspective, I think it would be, be a great addition. I think as far as on your interview, it would help. I'm not sure you'd actually have to have uh, your license to, to be an engineer, but I'm sure it would look good on a resume. Is I, I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, to working so close to to actual airplanes in flight and being on those flight tests, uh, having the having the skills of being a private pilot would definitely help. And like you said, it's not a requirement, but uh, I do know that uh, the flight test engineering positions we have here mention it on the job description that having a private pilot license is, is definitely uh, preferable. I Honestly, I think a private pilot license would be good for any career. Uh, I think it just shows that, that you are able to study and you're able to commit to something and actually follow through and and do something that's not easy you know it is uh, difficult to actually to get your license and it's, it's challenging and uh, and it says a lot about somebody and something that they can't take away from you once you get that yeah I absolutely agree you know there's there's the technical part of flying a plane and there's the soft skills you learn also uh, training for your pilot license and that that plays a big part in any job you do now uh, he has another question here uh, he says here, and I'm not, I don't think I can answer this, but maybe you can. He asks, is there any role in the aerospace industry for someone like me having design and mechanic skills? And that, that question actually works out great for me. I know the question was directed to a previous guest of yours, um, and he was particularly interested in flight test engineering, but there absolutely is a role for people in the aerospace industry with graphic design and mechanic skills. And that would be the kind of job that I'm doing. You know, I, a lot of the repairs I do, I do on drafting software, being very good on a computer and having those skills, having the, the vision to work in 3D, that, that plays a big role in it. And then having the mechanical skills to know, you know, know your nuts and bolts, that, uh, that's also a big part of our job. And, you know, that, that too is something that I think is, is a challenge there is knowing that all those little intricacies of of the mechanical side of things. I, I and I think that he should look at this as a career too. I mean, not just a flight test engineer, but but exactly what you do. And uh, I, I think that's great. As a matter of fact, if uh, he has any more questions, or say there's there's other listeners out there right now that have questions, uh, Walter, do you mind if if I could forward those on to you? No, absolutely. I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to answer them. Great, great, and. Uh, you know, a junior, actually, I'll finish up his, oh, here, he says, I appreciate your effort in producing this podcast, and I'd like to thank you in advance for your time and dedication. Well, junior, it's it's people like you and people like Walter that actually make this possible. Uh, what we're doing here, I, I think, is helping a lot of people, and your questions, uh, junior, have helped other people that are listening, and, and Walter being part of this has really helped a lot. And I tell you, the, the, this is one of the 
greatest things about aviation is that people are so passionate about it and and they they're very interesting and engaging type of people and and that's why I like it I mean whether you're fixing the plane you're designing the plane you're flying the plane uh, you're part of the customer service end of it we're we're all very passionate about this whole aviation field it's uh, you know we we don't ever want to leave it no matter what our jobs are we're not defined by the actual specific job we're defined by by this industry and and how much we love this industry uh, there's one thing I wanted to add just before you finish up uh, to to maybe help with Junior's uh, career searching skills and maybe a lot of other listeners that really if if you want to get get involved in in your aviation career uh, get your foot in the door in one of the companies you know for his case uh, Embraer or Hellebrus get your foot in the door work whatever job you can do whatever job they they have open whatever job they'll they'll hire you for and uh, once you're in there, you can move and do whatever kind of job you want. You know, once you're in there, you, you can see what's available, specifically what kind of work all those other people do. And uh, you have a better shot at getting the job than someone who, who isn't already an employee of theirs. Well, Walter, that's some great advice. And I, I really appreciate you relating that plus everything else you, you've related here. And uh, is there anything else you want to relate to our listeners? I know as far as contact, they can just contact us here. Yeah, any questions? Uh Email Carl, and I'll give you my answers. Terrific. I appreciate that. And then to, to find my email address, it's easy. Just go to aviationcareerspodcast.com. You'll see a little button on the front that says Contact, and you'll see all the other ways that you can actually subscribe, like in iTunes and Miro. And if you want to find me on Facebook or, or Twitter, you can find us there. Um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned there is getting your foot in the door, and something that I've gotten a little more involved with, which was suggested, was LinkedIn. I mean, that's another way to find out about these companies and, and getting your foot into the door in, in any of these uh, uh, aviation or aerospace companies. So, uh, But again, Walter, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Your story is just terrific. I mean, I, I think it's awesome. You obviously have a passion for aviation, and, and I, I think we'll definitely have you on again to talk about where, you, where you've been and, and where you're going and, and where you're moving to in your aviation career. So for our listeners out there, thanks again for listening, and I really appreciate your being here. And gosh, you know, when you're, when you're looking at an aviation career, just remember this, to, to just keep moving forward and, and keep that dream alive. Keep searching. For information, listen to things like this, get on the internet and read, constantly be asking people questions, and try to formulate the career that you want. What's the, the life that you want to design? And the best way to do that is get as much information as possible. Well, we'll talk to you next episode, and safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved. <laughs>